together. I have a mic. You, you obviously don't, but I don't want you to disengage when we pray. And so uh, let's ask God together what this passage has to uh, teach us in terms of what, we're, what motivates our actions uh, and how we are to think about living in, in this world in between redemption and glory, the life in between. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, it is good to be in the presence of your people, and it's good to have another day um, to experience uh, all the, the gamut of things that we experience in this world. And Lord, it's all a gift. Um, even the pain, even the hardship, it's a, it's a gift because life was given to us uh, by you and through your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, um, if the gospel is true, you will lead us to yourself. You will call us to yourself. You will set us apart for yourself. And you have made us, Lord, to enjoy you forever. And I ask that you would give us a little taste of that here as we worship you uh, in the great congregation that we enter that has existed from all eternity, that you called your people out before the world was made. And in some small way, we participate in that right here and right now. And so show us, Lord, uh, the beauty of your son in Christ's name. Amen. So the gospel, uh, the good news that God became a human being and entered the world to fix everything gives us a different motivation behind all of our actions. Uh, if you sit down and ask anybody today, the normal person what Christianity is, and you listen closely, what, what, you'll, what you'll learn is that still today, most people think that Christianity is about self-improvement. It's about changing particular actions in your life so that you can become a better person. And it's basically like a moral makeover and you sprinkle like some spirituality in there. Um, and of course, Christ, uh, he, he calls himself the king of the world. And so he is going to require certain ethical behaviors from you. He's going to tell you to not do things that you want to do, but you know are bad for you. But I want you to look at verse 20 and 21 before we start off uh, talking about this passage, because there's a subtle distinction that Paul makes about describing the life apart from God and the life of God. And he says, that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you were taught in him. Now, when you think about what it means to be a Christian, what it means is that your whole life is supposed to be pointing to someone else. It's supposed to be pointing to Christ, that you learn Christ, that you're in Christ. Now, the reason why that's important is because many of us in here are tempted when we look at a passage like this 
to turn it immediately into like a self-improvement deal. But I think what Paul is, is talking about is that there's really two, two ways to live and only two. Uh, the life apart from God and the life in between the two ages of redemption and glory. That gets confusing. And so he's helping the church in Ephesus understand what it means to actually live in Christ, to learn Christ, to put on the new self. And so we're going to look at that under these two points, the, the life apart from God and point to the life in between. So look, uh, the life apart from God, point one, look at verses 17 through 19. And I'm just going to read that again. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. If you seek to live the Christian life, um, you will be tempted at all times each day of your life to leave God in your mind and in your senses. That's not something that goes away when you convert to Christianity. It's not something that just happens to you in the past and you don't you don't have to deal with anymore. And Paul is talking to Christians in this letter, and he's telling them that you, the church, are just as prone to leaving God as those outside the church. And that'll be a challenge until you die. And he's using that term Gentile to refer to a category of people who uh, don't want to live their life under God's rule, who live, who want to live away from God. And to live this way, uh, and I really want us to think about this today, to live that way is just as tempting to church folks as it is to non-church folks. It just has like a different face in religious context. And it is the gospel that we all need constantly and continually because we always forget it all the time. So Martin Luther, the old German one back in the day, this old lady, after one of his sermons, came up to him and asked, hey, why, why do you tell us the same exact thing every sermon? Why do you, you preach the same gospel every single week? And he said, it's because we forget it every single week. That's, that's what it means to live in light of the gospel as Christians, that the way you got in to faith in Christ is the way you stay. And that, the, that message of Jesus Christ is necessary to make it through each day of your life as, as a Christian. Now, the way our, our passage talks about that is that the, the Gentiles have become futile in their minds, which ultimately manifests itself in doing ba basically whatever feels good in your senses, sensually. Meaning, what you believe very much informs and directs how you live your life, what you do with your body. Um, and there are three dominant things that begin to happen that characterize uh, the life apart from God, starting in verse 17. This is how it works. This is how life apart from God slowly begins to work. You begin to think that everything is meaningless, which means you become cynical and hopeless, verse 17, which in turn makes everything confusing to you. Uh, verse 18 says that your understanding, like what's right and what's wrong, 
your understanding about the world or yourself becomes dark. And that leads you to experimenting with things that you wouldn't normally do. That may even be bad for you. Self-inflicted harm stuff. And you grow addicted to self-inflicted damage. And so you become, you become callous. Uh, unable to feel. Verse 19. There's this idea in scripture that one of the worst judgments that God can give a human being is to give you over to what you would naturally be inclined towards. That that's part of God's judgment. You see that here in this passage. And here's where this is all all rooted in this life apart from God is all rooted in this deep suspicion that God isn't really that good. And you begin to you begin to notice and observe the world around you and you begin to notice kind of what's going on in your own heart and you begin to come to the conclusion there's no way that there could be a benevolent God that's controlling all this and could be somehow good. And so you grow cynical. You close your heart off to him. Actually, the Greek in verse 18 says your heart becomes like marble towards him. You become unable to feel things. Again, Paul is talking to the church. And this will always be a temptation for those in the church as well as those outside the church to begin become callous like this. Now, let's let's say you are in a place with Christianity right now where, you, where you're saying, you know, I don't quite know what I believe anymore, to be honest. Uh, I, I'm pursuing other ways of thinking and being just to manage my anxiety and the weight of the world because the church has so very obviously lost his way. Um, many that I know are, are using drugs, not as a way to party anymore, but like they're self-consciously saying this is a form of self-care that I'm using. And as I've had discussions with friends about this process, it's often referred to as like deconversion, which I don't think is a good name for, for what's happening, but... Uh, what people are tempted to think in this process is that outside circumstances, maybe past neglect or harm, led them to disclaim the validity of Christianity. And what many people do at that point, and it's, it's very unfortunate because you're at this crucible of what you could believe about Jesus Christ. What many people do is that they leave the church because of its terrible inconsistencies. Russell Moore, uh, he said, he's, he's a theologian in Tennessee. He says, uh, people are leaving the church right now because evangelicals themselves aren't believing what they're teaching. People, people aren't leaving the church because of what it's teaching, but because of our own inc inconsistencies. And that's certainly an issue. But here's where, and especially if you are considering walking away from it all yourself right now, here's where I would challenge you. Um, as a human being, it is impossible to escape your own bias. That you're inclined, you're inclined, you and I are inclined to self-protect. And what if the very heart of the cosmos, what's encoded within the cosmos itself, is an innocent victim dying for his enemies? And that your heart of hearts, deeper than what you feel on the surface, is so inclined towards that narrative that you want it and you can't help but wanting it. This is the offer of Christianity. 
you can forgive like God forgave in Christ. That what flows to you through the Godhead can flow through you to other people. And in your heart of hearts, you know that that's what you need most of all. But what's so tricky, what's so tricky about us is that we're simultaneously repelled by that because we know how hard it's going to be. Your context and your circumstances don't make you into something. It can exacerbate it. But what your context and circumstances do is that it reveals what you truly believe. It reveals what you truly love and who you really are. So what the first section of our passage is teaching us is that if you are currently doing something that you never would have done in the past, and you know it's wrong, here's what that reveals, that it wasn't advantageous for you to follow that desire of your heart in the past. But it is now. And that's how you know when you've actually learned Christ or you are still thinking about the Christian life as a performance. By believing when it no longer brings you any physical comfort. That's what it means to grow up into Christ. You see, all sin is rooted in this deep suspicion that we all have that God isn't actually good. How could he be? Again, with this big mess all around us, this is the very heart of the cross and resurrection. This is the gospel that there actually is good news. And what Christians are called to do in the midst of that is to proclaim it out into ourselves constantly and to put on that new self each day because it's so difficult to believe it. Because of the circumstances around you. Paul says, put it on. You're a new creation. Remember. Um, the, the great reversal of the gospel can happen in those uh, crossroads in your life. Whether it's with a relationship or like with people who are exiting a certain belief and entering another one. A lot of times you just kind of throw it out or, or you give up. And what, what I think Paul would say is like, pay very close attention to what you do when you really want to dip out of anything. Because God is the great artist. And he produces change when you least expect it. And if any of you have ever given up hope on a relationship with someone because it was just too toxic or too painful. And maybe that was with a family member. And you spend, you know, Decades processing the harm and, and the hurt and the person who caused all that pain comes and says to you the thing that you have always longed to hear. And they say, I, I'm sorry, or I, I love you, and I did a bad job. What's challenging, if you're on the receiving end of that, is trying to live in light of that new reality. What, what often uh, we claim to desperately want and need, when we actually get it, we don't know what to do with it. That's the feeling of living in light of the hope of the resurrection. That's what Paul is talking about with this life in between. What do you do with the insertion of hope in a world that's so broken? Paul gives us some, some pointers. Uh, he says, put... Put off your old self and put on the new. 
It's what I, what I would call concentric circles of conversion. That your conversion isn't something that just happened in the past, but as C.S. Lewis says, it's deeper up and deeper in, always, every day. So what does it mean to be renewed in the spirit of your mind? What does it mean to put off the old self and put on the new in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness? Here's what Paul is saying, and here's the bizarre claim of Christianity. Change is possible. Like people can actually change. In fact, Christianity would say that change is inevitable. And each day you're growing into your awareness that you have been reconciled to God through Christ. Are you growing darkened in that understanding of the truth, the deepest truth of the world? And this growth and change never ends. It's perpetual and it needs to be renewed and requires us, as one theologian says, to be killing sin or it's going to be killing us. Um, th- this is where so many of us get confused because <laughs> no, no one ever described to us uh, the awkwardness of putting on the new self. It's like the clothes that don't really fit, you know, it's like, ah, I'm kind of used to being angry, you know, not compassionate. If you have the righteous clothings of Jesus Christ, Paul says you need to put those on every day and it's not going to feel natural. But maybe more than anything we need right now is to remind each other, like all this backbiting, all this anxiety, all, all the terror that we feel internally, that's not you. That's not who you are. You're tenderhearted because Christ is tenderhearted. You're eternally perfect. You are raised from the dead. And I'm going to see you through that lens, the gospel lens. There's always going to be times in your life where you, you don't feel like you're a Christian. Where you are consumed by doubt. And the Christian life uh, is about putting that off. And saying, that's not who I am. What I am is in Christ. And what you are is in Christ. And I'm going to look at you like that. And you're going to look at me like that's what the church is. To be called holy in Christ. And the most beautiful and hard thing about becoming a Christian is that many times your life gets more messy when you begin to think like this, when you begin to live like this. It's because evil doesn't like it. Evil wants you to meddle in cynicism and hopelessness. Evil doesn't want you to have any sort of joy. You begin to realize that even... You know, when you become a Christian, you begin to realize that even some of the good things that you were doing, you were doing for very terrible reasons. And here's how you should always be renewing your minds and in the spirit of your minds. We have to constantly tell ourselves constantly, God is far more gracious than I, I dare believe. And the flip side to that is what I thought was going to bring me happiness, what I thought was going to bring me joy. It looked good. It felt good. But in the end, it left me hollow. Like that's how the futility of our minds works. That what looks appealing at first isn't so appealing in the end. And I've said this before, but you are your most influential person in your life. And it's because you talk to yourself the most. 
And what are you saying to yourself? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Paul, Paul gives us very practical things to do, starting in verse 25, that characterize what it means to live life in between these ages of redemption and glory. In verse 20, 25, he says, stop lying, <laughs> basically. Don't lie. Uh, Jesus didn't die to make you a nice person. You must make sure that your niceness isn't a desperate plea to make sure everyone around you likes you. Uh, because if it is, you're sacrificing truth. You're sacrificing love. The first year I moved here, an older pastor from St. Louis, his name is Kurt Lutchens. Um, is Catherine Sandquist in here? She was, uh, she was dear friends with Kurt. He had just gotten out of the ministry, been in for like 35 years. We had coffee at Cultiva. And uh, I asked him, I said, if you could go back and change something over the long haul of your ministry, what would it be? And he, he stopped and paused and thought about it for a long time. And then he, he said this. He said, you know, it's the cowards who are thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation. He said, and I think if I were to go back, there are far too many times in my ministry when I should have said something to people, but I didn't because I was afraid of their response to the truth. And that one stuck with me. That the life in between doesn't enjoy confrontation, but it won't, it won't sacrifice the truth because of what might come from speaking it. Paul says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. That's not a license to be an angry person. But it's simply stating that there's a category for righteous anger. Verse 31, said, Paul then says, don't be angry. And so there's obviously different forms of anger and one's of God and, and one isn't. But this, this is how you know if it's the right kind of anger, the not sinning part. Uh, this is taken from Psalm 4, where King David is laying on his bed and thinking about all the people that hate him, all the people that want him dead. And the Christian life is never, ever about denying how hard that is. It's, ne it's never saying, uh, let's just act like that, that isn't really, really difficult. Um, but holding anger without sinning means that I can desire that this was not my circumstance. I can desire that me and this other person were at peace and that I wasn't being you know, falsely accused, but holding anger without sin is that I'm, I'm never going to enact vengeance on somebody who's wronged me by dwelling on it, by nursing it, by lashing out at people. But what you're going to do is that you're going to patiently wait and believe that God's going to take care of all the wrongs that have ever been done. And I don't have to. One of my mentors says, you can, you can desire all you want to that people will change, but you can never demand it. Desire without demand. Trusting that God, God's the only one that can change people. So I don't have to. I don't got to do it for him. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor so that he has something to give those in need. Uh, if you're constantly cutting corners at work, 
if you're constantly um, cutting corners in your classes, you're stealing from your workplace. You're stealing from your teachers. I think Christians should always be, we should always round down for ourselves and round up for others. We should be good tippers at restaurants. We should be flippant with our money in a generous way. Um, In the Old Testament, God told Israel, I love this. God told Israel, look, when you're farming, don't be going all the way up to the edge of your field because there's poor people who are traveling and they need your leftovers. So don't be trying to clean up everything that you got just to make a little bit more profit. Give it to the poor people. Again, uh, I've seen people actually change in this, in this area. I, I knew a person once who literally stole from people in the church. Then he went to prison, and then he came back and started. He was really generous after that. Gave to ministries. It can happen. People can change. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Had a, a pastor once that said, you could spend your whole life as a Christian trying to figure that verse out and never come to the end of it because it's so hard. As a Christian, you have to begin to start reading people, reading a situation, observing people, listening carefully, not so that you can differentiate yourself from that person, but you're, you have, as a Christian, you have an agenda in every conversation. And it's to give people grace in a way that's beneficial for them. That's your goal when you speak. To give people grace in a way that's beneficial for them. Do you think about how you speak? Do you give yourself time to ponder how someone will receive what you're saying? Are you just reacting to your life through speaking? And finally, the most characteristically Christian thing you can possibly do with other people is to forgive them. You know, the hardest thing about being a Christian is that the moment you seek to live into this new reality, you got this annoying person that shows up in your life that you wish you could just do away with. You know, you got you, your roommate starts gossiping about you. Uh, you got all these church folks who, who you may feel like are a little bit too rigid or you got these secular friends who are constantly critiquing you as a Christian and your tendency in the midst of all that is to be, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. He's like, ugh. People, they're the worst, right? Um, And I think what Paul is getting at is that, you know, none of these commands can be done in isolation. They're all relational things with people. And I think what Paul is saying is that those difficult relationships are the exact arena in which the gospel gets lived out. It's how you know what you believe. And Paul is saying that the very heart of worshiping God is communal. Like it's not just about you and God. There's a place for solitude, but it gets lived out in and among each other. And this is how you know what you even believe about God. If, if you're not growing in forgiveness and grace towards others, then you're not practicing the gospel. Now, here's what that practically feels like. It's, it's noticing that your pain tolerance is increasing over the years with what you can handle. That you can endure pain from other people from long, for longer periods of time without retaliating. That's, the, that's what forgiveness feels like practically. 
And this is where the gospel can really get into your bones when you realize, when you begin to realize that putting on holiness, putting on the righteousness of Jesus is actually, this is a process called sanctification, growing more holy, is a path downwards. And what I mean by that is that you can come into the realization of the gospel really when you've hurt someone or someone else hurts you and you realize the measure of mercy you're going to give to one another and how you deal with that. The pain that that causes will reveal to you what you believe about the gospel. Life in between conversion and glory is so extremely messy, but it's worth it because you find Jesus in the pain. And verse 30 says, do not grieve this process. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, which is revealing to you in the midst of that hardship who Jesus is. That those things in your life that you wish would go away are exact places where the mirror and the image of Jesus Christ can be seen in the process of forgiveness. That above all, put on love. Above all, forgive as God and Christ forgave you. Don't stay away from God or the Bible because you know it's going to change you. Nothing is static in this world. You're either growing towards God or you're growing away from him. And if our goal is to forgive as Christ forgave us, no one can ask more from us than we've asked for Christ. It's impossible. This is why Paul and, and other letters can say, it was in the view of my own sin that I actually learned more about Jesus. That the good things I thought I was doing in my performance was actually keeping me away from seeing how beautiful the gospel was. I mean, if you just think about that game last night, you know, uh, Mar <laughs> Martinez, you know, he, f he fumbles on that play that should have been called dead. Um, his, his performance, let's, let's say he won. And every, everyone was like congratulating him and, and it was wonderful. Um, do you think it would be easier for him to have found Jesus in the midst of the loss or the win? And it's the same with your life. When you've really dropped the ball, um, that's when Jesus becomes irresistibly beautiful to you. That's the story of the world. And so this is how it practically works out. Uh, when you see your drunk friends, when you see your friends who hate Christianity, when you see your friends who have stabbed you in the back, I want your first thought to be, they would make a great Christian. If, they, if I can be a Christian, they can. Only those who know their own sin can think like that because they know how much Jesus has saved them. That's why the gospel is so challenging to church people as well as non-church people. It's hard, but beautiful and attractive. The gospel is a continual call to live in that tension of the life in between the ages where it's messy, but it's worth every second because you will come into contact with Jesus Christ. And particularly, you will see the beauty of his death and resurrection and what it means for the world and for you. 
that's what we hold out to each other. That's what will sustain us. That's what will see the church through throughout the ages. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for the fact that our lives really aren't about us. That um, when we are found in you, uh, our attention gets focused elsewhere. It gets away from our performance, gets away from the good things we've done or the bad things we've done. It's not really about that anymore. It's about you. And that we are to revolve around you. We are to focus on you. Um, not simply because you demand it, but there's a slow uh, inclining thing in our Love, because you first loved us. We want to love like you.